Matthew and Luke uh, tell of the story of King Herod and the wise men and the shepherds and this whole Christmas story. And when we get to the book of John, though, just from the very first verse, we realize something is different about this book. And it's not so much the how and the when of Christmas as to the why. Why did Jesus come? If you have your Bibles, just go ahead and open them to the book of John. It's the fourth gospel in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. And we're going to be studying John for the next couple of months here, right up until Easter Sunday. Uh, and I'm sure that some of you have, probably most of you, have seen a thriller, a, a TV or a movie in which the hero at the end of the movie is in front of a bomb and it's about to go off. It's counting down 10, 9, 8, and the front panel of the bomb is off and he's staring at two wires, a red wire and a blue wire, and he has the wire cutters and it's which one does he cut? Now, I don't know if that actually would disable a bomb. I don't know why you would make one in which if you cut just one of those, it would quit. But anyway, let's not question that. Let's just go back to the movie. He doesn't know which one, the red one or the blue one. If he cuts one, they live. If he cuts the other, they die. And sometimes life feels very life or death. And the book of John, it's exactly what it is. We read through this gospel and we see that there's a life or death choice for all of us. There's a life or death path for all of us. It was written, John, by Jesus' closest friend, the apostle John. And The Gospel of John tells us this life or death story, and John makes it clear, even in this book, that this is a life or death book. Listen to John 1.4. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. All the way at the end of the book, John 20, verse 31. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. For the hero of the movie... You know, they're sweating, not sure which wire to cut. It may come down to a brainy assistant looking through a book, you know, how to dismantle a bomb book. And the brainy assistant yells out, red, it's the red wire, cut the red wire. And that one word, red, could save everyone's life. You know that one word could save a life. It may be one word that saved your life. Stop. Look out, or if you don't have time, hey, that could save a life, right? It could keep somebody from dying. And today, I want to propose that there is one word who can save our lives, and not just physical lives, but spiritual lives. So let's pray. God, we, we thank you for your word that we're going to learn about today and experience today, and see and taste today. Lord, we love your word. We love what you have done for us and in us. And today and over the next couple months, as we study this book of John, we pray that we could find life in you, real life. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you, if you have John open, oh, time out. Okay, we don't need this. Are we good? Can you hear me? Hello? Are we good, Jerry? Okay, sorry about that. I think I messed something up on the buttons back here. I did not cut the right wire earlier today. <laughs> I was practicing. 
and I cut the blue one. Uh, I appreciate Sammy reading John 1. It's such a heavy text, and I appreciate her reading that. And I, I want to just draw our attention to four truths that we see from John chapter 1 about the Word. And the first is this. Life was created by the Word. In, in, in chapter 1, verse 1, I mean, it sounds so big and epic and grand. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It probably reminds you of another Chapter 1, verse 1, all the way back to Genesis, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I mean, that's not just a coincidence there. John takes us right back to the beginning, right back to Genesis. And in Genesis, when God created things, how did he do so? He did so with his word. Let there be light. And there was light. In fact, Colossians 1.16 tells us that it was the word Jesus, who created all things, all things were created by him and for him. 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says that there is but one Jesus Christ through whom all things came and through whom we live. So life was created by the word. And secondly, life is saved through the word. And the word is Jesus. In Genesis 1, God creates life and it's the word for existence. But in John 1, the, the word used is, I, I've got to just teach you one or two words today that are really important. The word for life is Zoe, like Z-O-E. You probably know some girls named Zoe. But that word Zoe for life doesn't just mean existence. It means passion and purpose. It can even mean dance. So it has this idea of a fullness to life. So in John 10.10, 10, when it says that Jesus came that you may have life and have it abundantly, it's that you may have Zoe, this full, passionate, purposeful life. You see, some of you are existing, you're breathing, but you're not really living. See, some people are going through the motions of this world, but they don't actually have a life, a Zoe life, a full and passionate and purposeful life. And Jesus says that when I come, I want you to have Zoe life, full life, passionate life, purposeful life. I want you to wake up with something to do. I want you to go to bed full and tired and worn out from doing things that matter, things that grab your heart. And we can try to go down all these different roads and none of them will fill us with real life until we find the word, Jesus Christ. In verse four, John writes, in him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. A number of years ago, Dave Dunson was uh, with me in Chicago and we had gotten ourselves into a little situation. Uh, we were uh, being good friends to somebody. Um, we did not have any students with us at the time, and uh, high school students, uh, they were all safe and in a good place, but we were asked by a friend to take two little boys to their apartment because the, the boys um, needed help getting there just to be safe, and they lived in a, in a big apartment. Um, you can, that's the one. And, uh, there was lots of violence there. It was kind of a dangerous place to be. And Dave and I, of course, said, yeah, we'll help. 
And so for the next 30 minutes, we acted really brave, but we actually were trembling on the inside. We got out of the van with the two boys, and we walked in, and there was some guys standing around. There was a trash can with a fire in it. It was like a scene right out of the 80s movies. Um, And we realized that one of the reasons the boys needed help getting home was because they had to go up the stairs. The elevator had been broken for weeks, and they lived on the 14th floor. So the boys and David and I walked up the 14 flights of, of stairs. And when I say we walked up the 14 flights of stairs, I mean the boys and I pushed Dave up 14 <laughs> flights of stairs. Um, actually, the truth is that Dave and I were just trying to stay close enough to the boys because they were way faster than us. But we were panting, and when we, when we first turned into the stairwell, it was just pitch dark. I mean, it's like where you could not see your hand in front of your face. And so we actually went up the 14 flights of stairs without being able to see where we were stepping. And I just remember hanging on to the handrail. Uh, thankfully, they had one of those for 14 flights of stairs, kind of stepping awkwardly, hoping that you kept fighting the stairs and hoping that there wasn't anybody around the corner. And there may, maybe there were some people around the corner. We just never saw them because it was so dark there. And we finally got back uh, down and got to the light. And it was just, ah, oh, we can see again. Everybody's safe, everybody's okay, but just a few lights in that stairwell would have made all the difference. It would have felt warmer, it would have felt safer, uh, it would have felt easier. Everything about that would have been better. Light can make all the difference in the world. Without the light, we stumble around in darkness and we don't even have a handrail to hang on to. It's just stumbling in darkness. But the text says that Jesus has come The word has come to bring us life and that he is the light of all mankind and that light brings us grace. In verses 16 and 17, it says that life comes through grace. So without grace, we're stumbling around in the darkness trying to figure out how can I be saved? How can I be saved? How can I find real life? And we never find it without the light that shines and that light is the word, Jesus Christ Life is created by the word and saved by the word. Thirdly, we know God through the word. We know God through the word. Last week, uh, we preached a sermon. We had a really fun time at the end um, with Dave and Sloan. We're uh, great on stage. And we had so much great feedback from many of you who sent us notes and emails and calls and some who were here and some who had watched it online. Um, Uh, said it it was helpful to them, and we're so thankful for that as we talked about uh, how to honor God with your body. Uh, But we had some really funny things that were said, too. A a bunch of people here were fasting last Sunday. I don't know if you know that, and it's fine if you don't. But a lot of people going through the rooted discipleship material and and that uh, experience were fasting. And I got a few text messages from people saying, hey, thanks a lot, buddy. I was fasting, and you had a brownie on the stage the entire morning. (laughs) And so... I was just testing you guys, all right? All right, I was just testing you to see how strong you were. Um, But the thing that we heard a lot of was a whole bunch of people were totally confused until I finally mentioned that we had a bowl of carrots because you all thought we had a big bowl of Cheetos on the stage. And you cannot figure out what that had to do with a healthy body. And I know that many of you were really wanting to eat the Cheetos, and then you heard they were carrots, and you're like, I don't know if I could eat that many. Uh, But we had a lot of funny things happen and a lot of good things. But I wanted to practice what I preach, and I was at the gym a few times this week. And when I go to the gym, I recognize lots of people. 
I recognize um, the lady who works, it seems like, all the time there, and she's real friendly. And I recognize the guy who's always great at cleaning and goes around and he's cleaning equipment all the time. And I recognize a few people who are always on, you know, the elliptical machine or the treadmill, or there's one guy who's always lifting with his son over there that I see. And I recognize quite a few people, but if you said, do you know this guy or do you know that lady? I would say no unless we had exchanged words because it's the words that help you actually know somebody. And when we have a conversation, then I will say, yeah, I know him, or I know her. But it's not until we exchange words. Words are the clearest expression of who you are. And the word is the clearest expression of who God is. You know, some people love to argue. The the only reason they'll ever talk about Christianity is if you'll argue with them. And I actually get a phone call a couple times a year from somebody who just wants to argue. Uh, that's, they don't tell me that at first, but that's what it ends up being, just wanting to argue. And, and you probably have some friends or family, and maybe you're even that person. You just like to argue about philosophy and religion, and, but the reason you're not going to follow Christ is because you just want to argue. And, and what some folks want is an airtight argument for Christianity. And we can never satisfy them fully because if you go to a philosophy class, you'll learn that there's not really airtight arguments for anything because we can't really even fully know that we're in the actual reality we're in, right? I mean, you can say, well, how do you know that it's really your brain and we're not just like in a big snow globe and that somebody is shaking up every... I mean, how can you... And so you can... You, there's not such a thing as an airtight argument for someone who's a skeptic and a cynic. It's not to say there's not mounds of evidence for Christianity. There certainly is. The problem is that I can't convince somebody by arguing them into heaven. Eventually, everybody has to have some faith. And we ought to study, and we ought to research, and we ought to read, but it still comes down to some faith that we believe that God is who he says he is, that Jesus is God's son, and that he came in human form. But here's where John 1 comes in really helpful. Because John 1 comes and says, in the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the Logos. Recognize that word? Logos. That's the word for word. Logos. It's where we get our word logic. But that word logos was very familiar with the people who would have been reading this and talking to John because the ancient philosophers used to write about it. Socrates and Plato used logos and talked about this logos was this 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 wisdom from God that filtered down to mankind somehow. And, and Philo talked about how the word was this moving power of God throughout the universe that you could kind of maybe know just a little bit or know about it somehow. And most people agreed that there was this logos, there was this word, and it was this power that kind of drifted aimlessly around, but nobody really knew exactly what it was or how it worked. And it almost reminds me of the Star Wars Force, <laughs> That's kind of how the ancients thought. It makes me wonder if that's how they kind of designed the idea of the force, this this kind of cosmic power and knowledge that floats around. But the problem with the Star Wars force is that you don't actually know who. And there's no love. There's no intimacy. I mean, when Luke Skywalker apparently hangs out on a foggy cliff for several decades, I don't know what he's doing there, like staring at his navel. It's like, get over it, Luke. Come on, buddy. Get back in the game. Um... Well, I, I don't know what he's doing, but I don't think he's writing love poems to the force. 
And I don't think Luke would say, or Obi-Wan or Yoda would say, the force really loves me and cares for me and knows me personally. No, because the force can be with the good guys or the bad guys of Star Wars, right? I mean, Darth Vader has the force too. And so I think this is the way it was for the ancients who thought about this idea of logos as this mysterious thing that floats around and it might help you and it has this power and it has this wisdom. And then Jesus comes and John's writing here says, no, 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 here's the logos. Here's the word and it's actually a person. It's not something so mysterious that you can never see it or touch or hear or learn or know, but you can actually intimately know the word, God, Jesus Christ. If you want to be convinced of Christianity, here's your logic, here's your logos, it's Jesus. That, that Christianity ultimately isn't a, a, a whole bunch of rules. Uh, Christianity isn't uh, meant to just win and dominate you know, arguments and debates, although that can be part of the process. But Christianity, if you say, if somebody says, show me what Christianity is, then what your answer needs to be is, let's look at Jesus. Because Jesus is the word, the logos, God in the flesh. The greatest understanding of who God is is by understanding God in human form, Jesus. And so we can really know God. Fourth, fourthly, the word dwells with us. Let's look at verse 14. It is so powerful. John 1.14 says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. We don't like to be close to other people. Now, our, our culture, we like our elbow room, don't we? We like our space. You know, imagine sitting in a doctor's room, and you walk in, and you're the only person in, in the waiting room. I know that would be a hard stretch of the imagination in most doctor's waiting rooms, but imagine you're there. There's 50 empty seats. One other dude comes in, and he comes, and he sits right next to you. I mean, not even like a chair in between, but right next to you. You'd be weirded out by that, huh? You might even get up and move. We like our space. It's why Jose has to say, you know, sometimes on Sundays, can everybody kind of move together? You know, we've actually caught people leaving because there wasn't enough space. And we're like, no, 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 come in. We'll, we'll find a spot for you. And so Jose says, hey, if everybody can move together. And you're like, okay, we'll move together. We'll sit a little bit closer. <laughs> um, we like our space. We like some room. We don't do real well close with others sometimes, and yet sometimes being close and just being present with others nearby is exactly what people need. The story is told of Abraham Lincoln, who was visiting a boy who was dying in a hospital. And he went and he sat next to the boy's bed. And Lincoln's military leaders uh, came in after he'd been there a few minutes and said, we got it, we really got to go. We need, we need to get you out of here, and we got things, places to go. And Lincoln said, no, I'm going to stay here with this boy right now. And he stayed there with that boy for two hours until the boy died. And one of the soldiers who had watched all of this later said, I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up in a good church. But I never really understood God's compassion until I saw what the president did that day. Because he saw this important man just being present with somebody. 
Sometimes the greatest thing that you can do for somebody is just to be present with them, to not be in a hurry, to not be glancing at, at the text messages, but just to be with them. Philip Yancey wrote, Jesus gives God a face, and that face is streaked with tears. Want to see God? Look at Jesus. And I really just want to pause here for a moment. I want to ask you, who needs you? Who needs your presence? Maybe they're not dying physically. Maybe they're dying relationally or emotionally, spiritually, maybe with loneliness. Who needs you? Are you too busy today, this week, to be with them? The text says that the word dwelled among us, made his dwelling among us. That word could, could actually be written like this, that the word came and tabernacled with us. And tabernacled, that's a strange word. All the way back in the Old Testament, Moses says, God, let me see you. Let me be right there with you. And God says, you can't. You'll die. My glory's too much for you to handle. But build this tabernacle, this, this structure, and I'll go, and my glory will be there. And you can get a taste of it, a glimpse of it. And, and the Israelites do that. And yet here we come, and John writes that Jesus came and tabernacled with all of us, that he wasn't just in one physical structure, that he was all over. What it means is that religion died. There was, there, there was no religion. Christianity is not a religion, if this is true. Dick Lucas tells a story of an unbeliever who walks outside one day, and he, he's visiting with his Christian neighbor. And he says to him, where's your temple? I, I'm trying to learn about Christianity. Where's your temple? Is it in, in, in Mecca or Jerusalem, or is it a cathedral in Europe? Like, where, where, where's your temple? And the Christian says, well, we don't really have a temple like that. Our temple is Jesus. And the unbeliever says, well, what about your priest? Who's your, who's your priest? Do you have a local priest or you have to go to somewhere uh, in order to connect with God? And the Christian says, well, Jesus is our high priest. He's both our temple and our priest. And the unbeliever says, well, yeah, but what do you have to sacrifice? Do you have to go somewhere to, to give certain sacrifices in, in order to be saved? How do you do that? And the Christian says, well, Jesus is our sacrifice. He's the great sacrifice. He died for our sins. That was the great sacrifice. And the unbeliever says, I don't get it. What kind of religion is that? The Christian is like, it's not one. It's not a religion because a religion is you do stuff in order to be saved. There's this long list of things that you have to do. You have to attain. You have to be good enough. You have to carry out all of these things. And Jesus comes and says, I've carried those things out for you already. I've done the work. I'm the temple, the priest, the sacrifice that you can come to God through me. So while religion says do good stuff in order to be saved, Christianity says follow Jesus and he will so transform your heart and change you from the inside out, you'll end up doing a whole bunch of good stuff. It's the opposite. Most religions teach of a distant God that we have to kind of clamor towards him and never being good enough. 
um, and he's high and mighty, and we're lowly and nothing, and he doesn't really want a whole lot to do with us unless we climb our way there. But John tells us that God became man, willingly coming to us. The idea that God would come here in human form is called the incarnation. So God is incarnational because he did not stay in heaven away from us but came to us. And I was speaking with a few elders this last week. We were talking about how we want our church to be incarnational. And what that means is we don't just stay here um, not interacting with the rest of the world but that we go to where needs are and we find people and we interact with them and we pray with them there and we encourage them and we, and we get out of our safe places and we go to be vulnerable where it's risky, where it's difficult and, and that we carry out the work of Jesus and we go to people just as Jesus came to us. On March 13th, 1964, Kitty Genovese was driving to her New York apartment. And about tw- young, about 29-year-old lady parked her car and was walking to the apartment. And as she was walking, a man who was uh, a vicious man came and began assaulting her. And she screamed out. And people heard her in her apartment building. And we know that because lights turned on. And when the lights turned on, different people's lights turned on, her attacker, even though he had already viciously wounded her and assaulted her, got up and ran off. And she began trying to crawl to the apartment because no one had come to help her yet. And she got to the back door and it was still locked. And she needed to get around and nobody had come down yet. And after being gone a few minutes, the man who had assaulted her realized that nobody was coming for her and he went back and he finished the job. Of course, it troubled people greatly, and it led to lots of things, including uh, 911 kind of calls and how people think about that, because people were so disturbed that a young, innocent lady was dying, and all of these people could have helped, and either they did not hear, or they just thought, somebody else will go down and help, and that's what most people have kind of concluded. Somebody else will surely call the police. Somebody else will go help her. But to go downstairs meant you interrupted your evening. More than that, it meant you might die. You were walking down there where the attacker was. It might happen to you too. Nobody came for her, and she died. Yet Jesus came down for us. That Jesus left his perfection. That Jesus left his comfort, that Jesus left being right there beside the Father, that that Jesus left all of that to come to earth where he entered our violence, our brokenness, our depression, our sadness, our selfishness, our poverty. He entered all of that because it was worth it, because you were worth it. And so while many religions teach of a distant God who stays upstairs, Christianity teaches of a Savior who came down. So if this is true, if Jesus really is the Word who came to dwell among us, there's a couple things that you have to do 
First is, if Jesus came down, you have to choose. It's all or nothing. You either follow him or not, because if it's true that God came to us, we must choose whether we really follow him or not, and that means all out, completely. You know, a lot can be said. Uh, I read an article every week. Actually, I've kind of quit reading most of them, but about the millennial generation, and most of it's uh, negative. But I'll tell you what happened last week. We have uh, about three different groups, uh, small groups that are going through the rooted experience that um, are full of mostly millennials. And last week, uh, there was a 9 o'clock Bible class. There was a 1030 worship time here. There was a special prayer event from 3 until 4.30, and then there were small group discussion times and hanging out after that. And you know what the attendance of our millennials was? 100% attended. Now, they gave up their whole day. And, and, and that's not to say that just attending on a Sunday is all that God is after, but it does reflect something about some of our folks' desire to grow in Christ and desire to give full self to Christ and to truly follow him with everything that we have. And that's not just on Sundays. That's Monday and all the way through the week. So if Jesus comes down, you have to choose whether you follow him or not. If Jesus came down, then you must pray for others and tell them of Jesus. You must. You have to. Because if Jesus came and you know that there are people on the street who are bleeding out, people who need saved, people who need help, you gotta leave your apartment and go downstairs and tell them that there's a savior. You have to go help them. You have to go to the people, and those people may be messy. They may require a lot of you. You may get frustrated with them. It may cost you dearly, and it will be worth it every time. So go to them. Find the people that where you need to go. And number three, if Jesus really came down, never look into your life and think, well, God could never fix this. God can't really handle this mess in my life. Because if Jesus came down, he came down to fix those messes that you're thinking of. He came down to bring healing to you. He came down to bring joy to you, regardless of your situation. He came for you. We're talking about life or death, friends. Life or death. What are you going to choose? Jesus says, come on, come on, come on. I'll die for you, so come on, come on, come on. And the rest of the world kind of wages war against us and lures us down this easier path. But it's the path of destruction and death. And so choose the path of Jesus, the, the, the path of life, real life, so that you can live as Jesus desires you to live now and perfectly with him for eternity. Would you stand? God, we, we thank you that you came for us. We thank you that you came down, your word, in a man's body, in flesh, so that we could know you and that you would die and be our sacrifice. I pray for anyone who has not chosen life, that they would choose life through Jesus Christ today. And it's in his name we pray, amen.